For all you lovers of the Beehive State, welcome to the Utah Fan Club Podcast. Where we're spreading the buzz about why Utah is the bee's knees. This western state is quite the hub to learn more. Join with us at the Utah Fan Club. We want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, WaziTech, Utah's premier IT support company. They will help you with any of your IT needs. Go to www.wazitech.com. That's W-A-Z-I-T-E-C-H.com. Hey, Utah. This is Bryce, the fan club philosopher, and you're listening to the Utah Fan Club. Hey, Bryce, and this is Steph, the ambassador. And Bryce, who are we interviewing today? Such a great person. Uh, uh, Paul Johnson. You sound like you had to think about that for a while. Well, you know, and I was suddenly aware that I'd gotten really close to my microphone. And, and then I also remembered that I'm not sure what we're calling you. I thought you knew me. You've changed. You've changed. What does Paul do? He's a patent attorney. Yeah, or more broadly... Trademark? <laughs> Intellectual property? Yes. See, those are the kind of things I don't know. <laughs> it's all in one bucket in my mind. Okay, but that's why it's good that we're interviewing him because yeah, true. we can know a little bit more about what Paul that's does. That's so true. Yeah, good point. Intellectual property attorney. Oh, so we're just running. Or, or, or lawyer. We're just rolling this whole time, huh? So do you want to give us a little background of like where you went to school? Oh, yeah. How you sort of got excited about being an intellectual property sure. lawyer? <laughs> well, when I was a small child, I wanted to protect property of the mind. <laughs> Just, okay, that's not true. But, uh, yeah, I come from a family of engineers, and I was just really into science and good at math and that kind of stuff. So originally I was doing engineering, and then, um, yeah, uh, I studied down at Arizona State, and uh, at some point just decided... I wanted to look into patent law, and I went and worked at a law firm for a while, took the LSAT. Patent law appeals to the nerd in me. I'm able to learn about all kinds of new technologies and stuff, and that's really cool for me, being kind of like the person with the answers, and that's what I get paid for. By the way, I took this personality test one time. It said, you would like any job in which you get paid several hundred dollars an hour for your advice or something like that. And I was like, that probably applies to everybody, (laughs) but... I don't know. Not everyone. Because I feel like sometimes people, I wouldn't want to be, like, what if I was wrong? Like, I think it's cool that you know that your advice is good. Yeah. Yeah. Are you feeling the same way as? Well, Paul and I have very similar personalities, and that's true of me, too. Yeah. Yeah. But I haven't been as enormously successful at it as Paul has. I don't know if we should include enormously in there. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, at any rate. Okay. How about hugely? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh... It is very satisfying for me, like, when I have the right answer that I feel like somebody needs, you know, and, and I can give them that answer. And, you know, and a lot of potential clients that come to me, I, they, they don't really need my services at the time that they come to me or whatever, and so I'm, I'm happy to turn them away but, um, or to tell them, you know, you don't really need me right now. This is, what you need to do is do this, you know. But, so, but it is really satisfying when I have clients that they really do need me. So, Paul, what kind of uh, clientele do you usually work with? Who's most in need of your help, typically? S- well, maybe I should just give a little bit of an overview of what intellectual property is, and I'll help you kind of see, oh, like... Answer my question with a question. Who kind of yeah. needs, <laughs> needs my help? So intellectual property is basically all forms of non-tangible property. And that includes patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. Hmm. And so, like, a patent is something that protects an invention. A trademark is something that protects a brand. That would be, like, Coca-Cola, you know. A patent would protect, for example, the method of manufacturing the can of, to make Coca-Cola, to put Coca-Cola in or something like that, or the can itself. <coughs> a trade secret protects anything that's secret that gives you a 
financial business advantage hmm. by virtue of its being secret. So like Apple for the iPhone 11, <laughs> <laughs> they have, they're, they're working on that. Yeah. Like, That's a trade secret. Uh, all the stuff right now that nobody else knows about but them is uh-huh. all trade secret. Uh-huh. Um, like the formula for Coca-Cola is a trade secret. Yeah. And then uh, copyright protects creative expressions. So it, it, that can be in any medium. So it could be like the painting on this wall uh, you know, a book, a podcast, a, a poem, a podcast. Yeah. yeah, it's protected through copyright. In the United States, as soon as anything is quote unquote fixed in a tangible medium, it's protected by copyright automatically. Uh, so, uh, you know, like Bryce and I have a separate podcast. When we publish our podcast, we release it through a Creative Commons license so that mm-hmm. other people can repost it because we're okay with that. But uh, at the outset, by default, you know, you, you're the only one that has the right to make mm. a copy of it. Uh, now, you have to register a copyright at the federal level if you want to actually sue somebody for infringement. So, so a lot of times people come to me, and, I'm, and there are other advantages to registering it up front. So, like, for example, if you register it within a certain amount of time of when it's first published, then you can also get statutory damages, which means you don't have to prove the amount that you, uh, that you lost or whatever. You can just say, you can use a formula, and you can say, well, the statute says I get this many damages because you infringed this many times. If somebody copies you, and this is generally what I recommend for something like a podcast or a blog is that, yeah, it would get expensive if you're going to file a new application for, like, every single episode of your podcast, right? I mean, if you learned how to do it yourself, then that's $35 an episode. You know, that's the finally The finally is $35. But, you know, if you're, like, um, you know, a big NPR podcast or something, it's probably no big deal. But I, I bet they probably don't worry about it. Like, because what you do, what you can do is um, you just put it out there. And then if somebody starts copying you, well, then you can file an expedited application for that specific episode get it through really fast, and then you go sue them. So what kind of uh, clientele do you usually work with? Yeah, it's mostly solopreneurs or entrepreneurs, small businesses, basically. Those are almost all of my Like clients. the Shark Tank and, type people? Uh, yeah. Like, so I did like that. Of uh-huh. like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Somebody has some idea. I mean, the thing is there's several different types of clients based on the different types of things they're doing. So, like, for example, some people will come to me, and they'll have some product or some invention that they want to protect, and they'll come to me and they'll need a patent. If they're going to sell it under some brand name, they might also need a trademark, you know. If mm-hmm. they're going to have some kind of, uh, you know, manuals or something related to it, they might want to protect that through copyright, maybe not. Mm-hmm. I have clients who, like, sell things on Etsy, and they protect their artistic designs of things through copyright. And so mm-hmm. I file copyright applications for them. I have some clients who they just have some products they sell that aren't protected through patent, but they sell them underneath some brand name. And so all I do for them is I file trademark applications for them. So yeah. it's kind of a, uh, it's a wide variety of clients. Like almost anybody who's doing business in any way is either almost certainly going to be using some kind of brand name. And, you know, they're, they might be coming up with some uh, creative material that could be protected through copyright. So if there are things that they create that are like expressions uh, that they don't want other people to copy, then copyright might help them. And if they're in any kind of, I mean, it doesn't even have to be quote-unquote technology, but any kind of like product that they're creating that's kind of new and different, Mm. it might be protectable through patent. And so 
Did you guys ever see that full house where Uncle Jesse thought that he came <laughs> up with the best invention? Do you remember uh, this? I don't know. So Uncle Jesse loved to sp- uh, hairspray his hair. Uh-huh. And so he's like, you know what? If I make this shield that you put up against the face and then the hair can go underneath. You guys don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, um, that, so that he doesn't get hairspray on his face? Yeah. So uh-huh. it was like this shield, but then someone already had it. So there's legal dispute. So that's what I've been thinking about this whole time is uh-huh. Uncle, Jesse's, yeah. Uncle Jesse's Uncle Jesse's invention. Uncle Jesse's dilemma. Yeah. So... Um, but he was a comedian, right? Uncle, His character? Uh, that was Joey. Oh! Yeah. Uncle Jesse was the motorcycle yeah. buff. Yeah. And wasn't John he in a band Stamos? or something? Yeah. Oh, wasn't that was John Stamos? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. John Stamos. So, Paul, what is what is the difference between a patent and a trademark and a whatever the other thing Copyright. Was? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you don't know all these things. <laughs> I'm not the lawyer he is. <laughs> <laughs> and the trade secret. Um, those are there's four. There's four, yeah. Okay, and those are like totally separate categories. There, they are, there's some overlap between okay. them, but um, they're they're distinct enough that we can put them into mm. kind of four different amorphous boxes. Mm. Uh, yeah, let me quiz you guys. Kay. Okay, oh, so but let's I need say the information first before I can be quizzed. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. Let me just ask you, Nilsa. You'll learn along the You'll way, Bryce. Through, through yeah. yes. uh, inquisition. So let's say I came up with a new cologne, and I'm gonna call it Ode. De Bryce. And, um, it's going to sell big. <laughs> yeah. It's or, sell or big. not at all. <laughs> it's going to sell big. Like, I don't need to smell more of him. So I got this cologne I'm selling. I'm selling it in like Nordstrom or whatever. Uh-huh. Oh, De Bryce. So what kind of protections, if any, do you think I could use to protect that at all through intellectual property? Uh, you got to protect the formula. Okay. Which is trade secret? Yeah. Is that one of That's correct. Four? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? And the name. Okay. Which is trademark. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And I can't remember the other two words. And well, then you got it right though. Okay. Wait the the patent. Well, what's the patent? Yeah. What is the patent? Well, I will tell you this: um, patents and trademark trade secrets kind of have a lot of overlap. Uh, they can, anyways. Uh-huh. Now, because um, trade secrets often protect things that could be protected through patent law. So, for example, if I come up with this new cologne, I could protect it through trade secret as long as I can keep other people from figuring out how to uh, reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. Which colognes and, like, uh, you know, recipes and stuff like that, they're, they're typically hard to reverse engineer. That's really? what, Yeah, that's why nobody can make Coca-Cola. Oh. Because, and this is one of the risks with trade secret law, if somebody's able to reverse engineer it, then you can't stop them. They can create it. Oh. So if Bryce and I, working in some lab, could come up with a formula for Coca-Cola, we could legally sell it. Okay. And we could call it, like, you know, we couldn't call it Wait, Coca-Cola. Wait, you could legally send, sell it because you reverse engineered it? Yeah, because we oh. reverse engineered it, because it's not protected through... Tra- it, like, it's just if you were getting, given the recipe, you couldn't do it. If we if we got the recipe through like wrong means, right. like yeah. it's called misappropriation. Like we yeah. can't sneak into Coke's offices. Yeah. And, but anyways, that's one of the risks of trade secret law is that if somebody's able to unravel your secret, uh, you know, there's no then there's no protection. Yeah. And so trade secret generally protects things that are very hard to reverse engineer, like formulas and recipes and stuff. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't protect like a machine through trade secret. Because you could get a, some engineers to undo that, you know, take that machine apart and look uh, at it, and they can nice reverse engineer it. And so, okay. you know, uh, trade secret doesn't help so you there. So in that case, a patent is more appropriate? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the difference between trade secret and patent law, though, is that, or trade secret and patent protection is that trade secret protection lasts for as long as you can keep it secret. Hmm. And that's why in some cases it's more valuable. And that's why 
Coca-Cola could have filed a patent application on their formula, but if they had, then it would have expired like 100 years ago, uh, right. and then everybody else would have been able right. to make it. Uh, and, and this is why, for instance, like, like pharmaceutical companies, when they bring a drug on the market, a branded drug, you know, that, that's a big part of the incentive for them to even develop that drug, which is very risky and time-consuming and expensive. But they have exclusive rights to it, which do eventually expire. But some, I would guess that some pharmaceuticals, they would probably prefer to protect theirs through trade secret if they could. Uh, but, but when you, to get a drug uh, allowed in the United States, you uh, have to pass it all through the FDA, and you have to yeah. tell them basically exactly how you make it. And uh, so they're going to have to tell people that anyways. Okay, so, so the word is already out. So they can't keep it a secret yeah. and, and because of the Food and Drug Administration. So yeah. Ideally, no one at the FDA would, would leak information, but... Uh, well, no, it's in the public domain. Like oh, every, everybody can domain. see it. Yeah, oh, everybody see. can see it. Like, see. And let, let me back up a little bit, too, and just say that like in the United States, so when the Founding Fathers were setting up the nation and the Constitution and all this jazz, mm-hmm. they considered monopolies to be inherently evil, yeah. but useful in some circumstances. And mm-hmm. so the underlying theory, underlying all of intellectual property law in the United States is what we call utilitarian theory, hmm. which is just that we think the benefits outweigh the cons if we give some people limited monopolies for certain things. And one of the benefits is that we think that if we, for example, if we allow people to protect things through trade secret or patent law, particularly patent, for example, um, we think that um, it spurs innovation. It helps people come up with new ideas because they know they're going to be able to probably recoup the costs of their, of their research and all that stuff. Uh, by having a limited monopoly for a while. So a patent in the United States lasts 20 years. Hmm. Oh. So you get 20 years, you know. So you, know? you can you renew it for 20 more or it's no. only 20 years? No, it's just 20 years and then it's done. Now, some pharmaceutical patents get like these extensions because uh, there's been legislation to allow them to do that because it sometimes takes so long to get FDA approval. You know, by the time your your FDA approval goes through, you only have maybe like 10 years left on the life of your patent. So sometimes they'll give you extensions for that kind of stuff. But for most inventions, you can't get it. Uh, you can't get any kind of extension. It just lasts 20 years from the date you file it. Interesting. So, but, you know, 20 years in some industries is a long time. Like for a software product, 20 years is forever. Oh, yeah. You know, because it's going it's, to, you're not even going to be using that yeah. same version or whatever probably by the time. But, you know, for a lot of things, 20 years, for pharmaceuticals in general, you know, when, the, when it's about to expire or, um, you know, for a lot of other kind of technology areas, when it's about to expire, like, there are people, like, chomping at the bit to wait to be able to be able to use that thing. Yeah. So. so that's kind of a little bit of pattern and, and wait, trade secret. question, and, though, with yeah. the O de Bryce. Yeah, O de Bryce. <laughs> it, would so, be, it would be U de Bryce. Oh, O de Bryce. Oh, that oh, that's you, like a song. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? But would that involve a copyright as well? No, only a trademark. Only a trademark? Yeah. So what's... Well, okay. Let me take that back. Let's okay. say the let's say the bottle has a very fancy design. Mm. It's maybe that maybe it's like a design that kind of looks like Bryce. Oh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I don't uh, think that would sell well. But it might not sell. For a, I don't know. You have say, you have your new haircut. That's true. It's a, it's a picture of Bryce like taking his glasses off or uh-huh. holding his glasses. Oh, and looking, I can see it. Yeah. So for example, I need to I need to get a little bit more into the weeds here because patents generally protect. Uh, inventions, but it's also true that there's a thing called the design patent, and a design patent protects the physical appearance of mm. an invention, mm. uh, of an article of manufacture. I mean, is what is what they say. So, so for example, Coca-Cola used to have a design patent on, like you know, their hourglass bottle. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. a design patent protect, and a design patent lasts for 
15 years. So other people didn't have that design for the, like, the hourglass bottle? Yeah, you couldn't copy that design in so close of a way that a consumer at the point of purchase would think, oh, this might be a Coca-Cola bottle. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, if it's basically a consumer at the point of purchase seeing it, if if Mm -hmm. they would be confused, like, oh, maybe that's that same uh, as the other one, then then that, that would technically infringe design patent. So... A copyright protects things too, though. So there's some overlap there because a copyright could potentially protect a stylistic, you know, design of an article of manufacturer as well. But it's kind of like copyright usually protects things that are not applied to articles of manufacture. Like um, it's kind of like the copyright kind of protects whatever you could take off of that thing and then stick on a wall mm-hmm. or something. So, but copyright, for example, protects like a painting, and you couldn't protect uh, a painting with a design patent. But like, oh, DeBrice, well, let's say we had like, the bottle had a cool design, like it was a weird shape, uh, or maybe it was just the shape of Bryce's head, not a weird shape. God gave me the head that I have. Nothing <laughs> I can do about that. <laughs> yeah, man. Great spiky hair and all. Um, so let's say the bottle had like spiky hair and, and it was like the shape of Bryce's <laughs> That's head. That's actually cool. Yeah. Then, yeah, interesting, yeah. Well, the, you could protect the bottle with a design patent. It's an article of manufacture, like the bottle is a manufactured thing, you know? Okay. And it's got a creative design on it. So you can protect that design for 15 years. Let's say also, though, like on the back of the uh, bottle, we printed a painting of Bryce's face. <laughs> and uh, you could put... We're selling cologne. It's got to be protected in all ways. So you could potentially protect that image on the back through a copyright. Yeah, okay. so that's kind of... So copyright things. is more with images, so like photographs. Well, it's any kind of creative expression, expression. so mm. it could also be words. So that would be like the blogs, the, the blog, podcasts. The podcast, the poems. Okay. Sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I'll start messing around with some poetry. I don't share it with anybody because I don't think it's great. Do you copyright <laughs> it, though? No, <laughs> but I mean, I don't register it, but uh, no, I just, I just uh, it's all non-published and just in my phone. So, question for you. Anytime you see the copyright signal, that means that someone's paid to have that copyrighted. No. Um, the copyright symbol, actually, anybody can use it as soon as they create a thing. Oh. oh without, that, without talking yeah. to anyone. It doesn't actually really have any legal significance because <laughs> even if... <laughs> Never mind. But <laughs> <laughs> it'll scare people away. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't copy that. Well, yeah. sure. If it has some deterrent effect, then I think it's useful for that reason. Sure. Um, you can just put the C symbol, or you can say copyright, and then you can just put the year it was made, or whatever, or the years of which it was made, uh-huh. you know. A lot, like on my website, I think it says, like, copyright, you know, 2015, 2018, or whatever, okay. and I just kind of change the year once in a while, change the engine. Yeah, so, back in the days, it used to be that you had to put that symbol on there in order to get full protection, but nowadays you don't. Huh. Now, with patents, when you file a patent application, you can also put patent pending on your product, or on your website, mm-hmm. or whatever. That also has no legal significance, but I always tell clients to do it because it might dissuade some people from copying your product or it might yeah. at least alert them to like, oh, this person at least has an application filed. They're like putting actual effort into making it yeah. legit. Now, with the trademarks, it's different. Like if you see the R symbol, circle R, that means somebody has a trademark registration. It's registered. Hmm. And so um, you can't use that symbol unless you have it registered. Hmm. You can get in trouble if you use that symbol without having it registered. Hmm. It can affect your ability to re- actually register the mark. Oh, really? Yeah, but if you're if you're using something and you claim that you have rights in the mark, but you haven't yet registered it, you can use the TM. So you uh. put TM. So oftentimes when you see TM, oh. now people don't always use this correctly. In fact, 
it's it's like hurting cats, like trying to get my clients yeah. to always do this the right way. Sure. But and I'll, I'll always have to be reminded them like, hey, this mark is registered, so you should put a circle R next to it. Uh-huh. And there are uh, legal benefits to doing that because if you if you don't do that, then you sometimes can't get damages in the same way as you can if you if you weren't using it or whatever. Um, or, so you don't you don't have all the same remedies available to you, and you don't have the full extent of the remedies available to you, basically. Anyways, I'm always telling people, you need to use the Circle R, or if they're using it on something that they haven't yet registered, I, I need to tell them, you need to use the TM, not the Circle R, because you can't use the Circle R on stuff that isn't registered. I, like, want to ask you about all these patents, but I figure that's probably stuff uh, you can't talk about. I will say that uh, every once in a while I get some some inventor who thinks he's invented something that defies the laws of physics. Uh-huh. A and def- perpetual motion machine. <laughs> perpetual motion machine. And I definitely try to turn those people away. Really? Um, yeah, it's fake. What like if you- they throw wads of cash in your face? I say, you need to use that wad- those wads of cash to try to build this thing. And then when it doesn't work, <laughs> don't come crying to me, because I told you it wouldn't. Uh, the general different technology areas that I've written patents in, it's pretty broad. Like, I worked at a few different firms in Arizona before I moved up to Utah, at those firms, I did a lot of, like, semiconductor stuff, which is basically, like, the building blocks of computers and smartphones and all that jazz. So I did a lot of semiconductor stuff. I did some defense industry stuff, like weapon Whoa, systems. Yeah, that stuff is cool. really cool. I wish I could tell people about it. Oh, man. <laughs> it would blow my mind when I would see this stuff, and I'd be like, dang, I can't believe we have stuff that can do that. Yeah. But then I'd watch videos, and, and it was really cool. But anyways, um, you know, I've done a fair amount of software stuff and just general like mechanical types of inventions but it's pretty broad i've done some clothing patents oh really know. it's a huge list i mean i've done a lot of different things just like kind of whatever clients have brought to me i've just done it you know so i don't have to understand an invention as fully as an inventor understands it i need to understand it enough to be able to explain what we're trying to protect to a patent examiner yeah and so i don't always have to know like all like the fine details about it if somebody in that industry would know what i'm talking about that's enough yeah. And so it's because of that, you know, I've written patents in a lot of different areas. So you, like, are one of those people that you're probably good at trivia pursuit because you mm-hmm. know a lot about <laughs> different areas. Yeah, Maybe. like when the topic if it's a, is if it's about engineering. weapons development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, but, you know, just different fields. Okay, Bryce, that yeah. sounded like a dumb question, I but I was just thinking, like, like <laughs> clothing or, yeah. or whatever. And so, and I think yeah. that's cool that people that, like, are using it on their Etsy, because, I mean, yeah. a lot of people that listen to this podcast are probably small business owners, yeah. and yeah. so it shows, like, even if you have something on Etsy that, like... Right. There's benefits in protecting it. I will say, too, like, what what intellectual property usually gives you is kind of a, a negative right. It doesn't... You can go out and sell some product without having a patent or a trademark or a copyright or a trade secret. You can just go out and start selling it, as long as you're not infringing somebody else's, the, you know, rights. But what it gives you is the right to prevent other people from doing the same thing. So... So it gives you a head up in business. Yeah, exactly. Gives you a, a little monopoly. So, you know, if you're if you have some kind of a product or a brand or something and you think well somebody else might want to use this name. I'm I'm doing a trademark dispute right now where um one of my clients uh started using some mark and then some other person started using some mark across the country basically within like a couple of weeks. Same almost the same exact mark for about the same thing. We're not sure if there's any fraud going on or not and we're like kind of duking it out right now because then what happens is you, both of you grow and then you run into each other, and you're like, okay, this is really inconvenient because now people will get that you're confused. Mm. So 
you know, there are advantages to, you know, registering a trademark, for example, when you, when your business is early so that you can stop that from happening. And so then, if they did have it registered, they would have to tell the people like, hey, you need to change your name? Yeah. So like what happened was they, they actually filed a registration before us, um, but we were using it in several states before they were for sure. And uh, so now we're trying to cancel their registration on the grounds that like um, the examiner didn't know about us. They did know about us. The examiner didn't. And uh, the examiner would not have allowed their mark if the examiner would have known there's someone else also using the mark. Because a federal trademark registration gives you the exclusive right to use the mark throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. So they don't give you that if there's other parties also using the mark already. Anyways, so that's the advantage of, like, filing for something early before you get too far down the road, you know. With a patent, you know, yeah, you you got some, you want somebody to not be able to make your product, eh, you got to get a patent or you got to keep it a trade secret, you know. Yeah, anyways. So... Yeah. What proportion of of potential clients come to you with ideas or or technology that uh, <laughs> isn't good enough to warrant protection? I love that you were like laughing before you could even get it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying not to be too mean about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? You like, know, perpetual uh, motion machine. You mean like fake stuff or just stuff that's not patentable? Like, uh, oh, well, that's a good question. I yeah. meant stuff that like isn't good enough to be protected because no one would want to copy it. But that was just my own, like... <laughs> oh, like... That was my own cynical spin on things. Oh, but just yeah, like, a, just like actually, financially, like, nobody cares. Exactly, so, but, but yeah. I, guess, I guess, yeah, more broadly, like... Well, you know... a lot of things you know, that actually, for whatever reason, are not patentable. Yeah, okay, well, to answer that first question, when I first started out in my career, I used to try to kind of guess, like, oh, I think that product's maybe going to make money and that product maybe mm-hmm. not, but I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But I, f- I found that, like, it was a, a lot of times it seemed really dependent on how much the person went out and got contacts and started yeah. getting their product on the shelf somewhere. And, yeah. you know, I've had clients who they want to go through the entire patent process and see what happens there first before they ever start, s- start selling. Yeah. That's basically the worst idea. Yeah. Really? S- yeah, it's a really bad idea. I started writing a book one time called How to Not Make Money as an Inventor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that and that was one of my that was one of my pieces of advice. Don't start selling until you have a patent. Did you start selling like, while you were writing it? Or I, no, I never finished okay, it. So it was like classic. Book. So like, do you think people oh, are just maybe. like afraid that like someone would steal their idea? So that's why I think they want to get it all. I think there's some paranoia. Yeah, and I have some clients right now like that. But you know, all I can do is encourage them. Like, hey, you need yeah. to sell. This. And here's the thing: like the patent process takes a long time. Like it's usually like two to four years. What? Yeah. And, and in fact, it's usually like a year and a half before you even get the first response. Like, um, because there's just a backlog at the patent and trademark office. Yeah. They're doing better about that. They're like narrowing the backlog. They're getting, they're winnowing it down, but you can't speed it up unless you've got a few good reasons to speed it up. Like mm-hmm. one of a few. And I mean, like you, if you have any inventor that's 65, they'll speed it up because they're afraid the inventor might pass away before sure. Oh, the inventor if they're 65 years old? Yeah. Or if you have an inventor. <laughs> so all you senior health. citizens right. out there, now's your time. Yeah, that's, that's true. Some advantages here, but don't go die. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or if you have like a terminal illness or if you have yeah. some other things like, or you, I mean, you can also just pay them an extra fee. It's like an extra 2000-ish or something and they'll, they'll examine it faster. But oh. uh-huh. so oh. you can't do that. Money like, talks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. It, it totally does. So what I often try to tell people is this. Most of my clients need to keep their costs low. They don't have like a ton of money. They're, they're doing this as like a side 
job or something, com- mm-hmm. you know, and they have a, a regular day job, but they got this kind of like dream that they want to follow. Sure. And so what I often uh, tell people is like, we can file a provisional patent application. It's a, it's a patent application that doesn't actually get examined, but it allows you to go out and sell without those sales affecting your potential future patent rights for one year. And so I'll often say like, let's file a provisional patent application and then you just go out and try to sell for a year. And then at the end of that year, you make a financial business decision. You know, do I think this thing is going to make enough money, A, to recoup all the costs that it would cost to patent it, and B, to bring in some profit, you know? Mm-hmm. And if not, then, yeah, it doesn't make sense to patent it, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I feel like I'm often encouraging people, like, to, to go that route because a lot of my clients are these small clients. And I'm often encouraging them to go, like, the less expensive upfront route and then go out and try to make sales, you know? Yeah. And it's important to do that. Now, in the United States, you can actually sell for a year before you even file a provisional patent application because the United States has a one-year grace period. So in, in, in that sense, we're especially, uh, we're especially kind to entrepreneurs. Hmm. And so you could actually create... Brass could uh, create some... His cologne. Some, his cologne. <laughs> he could create his cologne, and then he could go out and sell it for one year or, we'll say, 364 days. Okay. And then... And then file a provisional patent application, sell it for another year, and then at the end of that year, decide if he wants to file the regular full application. Huh. You know, and, and so by that time, you have two years of, you know, market intelligence to kind of help you gauge whether to, you know, fund the total patent process. Yeah. But I guess to kind of wrap that up, the point that I was trying to make is that I can never tell which products are going to sell and which ones yeah. aren't. And I'm often yeah. surprised... And so that's why I'm often like pushing people like just go out and sell and yeah. see. You need to find out how right. the market responds. It's right. either going to respond or no, it's not. Right. You yeah, know, because I, I mean, I found in my several not very successful entrepreneurial endeavors, and as well as in working with other entrepreneurs, like aspiring entrepreneurs, is the excitement they feel about whatever their product or services does not necessarily translate to what the market actually will bear and actually demand. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, I've never, yeah. I've never like told somebody whether I thought their product was going to sell or not. Yeah. N- not, not in the last like eight years or so because mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I don't actually know. The only time I did once with a guy who I thought probably had some mental disabilities, mm-hmm. and um, so I felt like I, uh, it was incumbent upon me to kind of steer him away from wasting his money yeah. um, on some product that I did think probably was not going to sell, but. Um, but anyways, but other than that, I just tell people, you go out and sell, and you got to find that out, man. I don't right. know if it's going to sell. Some of the products that I think are not going to sell, they start selling, like, gangbusters, and <laughs> then they start selling them in foreign countries, and they start getting oh, knocked wow. off and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And so, you know, if you've got a par- product that starts bringing in a bunch of money, well, yeah, you want the intellectual property to protect yeah. it and to keep knockoffs out. Yeah. So, so is that sort of exciting, though, when you see a product that takes off and you're like, oh, I knew about Because, you know, like, people yeah. that, like, love that they knew about bands before other people <laughs> yes. did. They're like, I yeah. knew that uh-huh. band. Do you sort of feel that way cool. about products? No, it's totally satisfying. It's really, um, it is really satisfying to see, like, one of your client's products, like, take off, you know, because then you're like, cool, you're following your dream, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, they often end up coming up with more products and then they, they become repeat clients and stuff. And so those are kind of like, it's awesome when it's like a success story like that. Yeah, yeah but then cool. to answer your other question, like about how much stuff is just not protectable, mm-hmm. like so in the United in the United States, uh, there's like two main hurdles to getting a patent. If you fulfill these, then you can get a patent. It has to be something that's new, so no one else has created the same exact thing, and it has to be not uh, obvious in light of what else is out there. So, like a patent examiner can 
find multiple different references that talk about stuff related to your product. And if if uh, the examiner can can get all the uh, the different pieces of your invention from those different references, the examiner can say, well, it would be obvious to combine all these things together and to get your invention because all the different pieces are in these different references, even though no one created your exact product the way it is. That's obviousness. So those are kind of the two main things. So, yeah, it's just different in every case. You know I mean? It's just you file the application. It's kind of the patent examiner's job to reject your application if, if they can. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's, it's an adversarial process. So it's basically uh, like your patent attorney against the patent examiner and yeah. making arguments back and forth. So oftentimes it's, a, it's like kind of like negotiations and uh, amendments along the way. You know, the examiner will come and say, well, you can't get a patent because these reasons. He'll give arguments why. And if I think they're good arguments, then I'll say, well, I'll tell the client, we need to change your claims a little bit so that we can get around these arguments. Or if the examiner's making bad arguments, I'll say, we just need to argue back. And then, and then if the examiner maintains this rejection, we've got to appeal it up higher, and you can do that. And so it's often a process that, yeah, like I said, it takes a few years. And, and so it's often you have some back and forth several times over a few years before some either issues or it ends up the examiner's just really got some good references that are probably going to keep you from getting a meaningful patent, and so then you might just abandon it, you know? So. Um, I feel like the, this is, like, actually really interesting, especially for your small business people, because I think people don't know where to go or who to trust or, yeah. like, whatever. Sure. But I, I don't yeah. know, and just interviewing these small businesses, like, I've seen a lot of people with their ideas, and, yeah. Sure, totally. Um, I don't charge people for consultations. I often, like, just get on the phone with people and just... You know, usually in like five to ten minutes, we can kind of tell whether they need, maybe need my services or not. You know, and most of the stuff that I do is like flat rate fee. Kind of depends. Like for this trademark uh, dispute that I'm doing, charge hourly for that because it's very hard to gauge how long it's going to take to do mm-hmm. this. Stuff. But for like filing a trademark application, a patent application, a copyright application, all that stuff, I always do that at a flat rate fee. And so my fees are all kind of clear and upfront. And so that's nice. You know, people at least know kind of what the cost is going to be. Um, it got sort of the monkey copyright. What, the monkey the copyright? The monkey copyright. Somebody tried to copyright a monkey? I think you should take your phone out and you should, you should just, just Google monkey copyright. Yeah, so there was uh, this guy. I can't remember where he was. I want to say it was like Thailand or something. But um, Hey, it's the monkey selfie, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the monkey selfie. That's right. But yeah, the guy set up this camera. The monkey came to the camera. There was a cord on the camera, I think, is how he set it up. So the guy set up this system, right? It was kind of a little bit vague to me whether or not he intentionally did this to try to get the monkey to snap mm-hmm. the photo. But in any case, whatever, what happened was that the monkey came and snapped the photo. The guy was, like, selling the photo. But then uh, Wikipedia posted it up on their website, and, and they said, well, nobody owns the copyright to this because the guy who, who owned the camera or whatever, he's not the author of the photograph the, the monkey is, you know. And in the United States, we only give copyright protection to an author, so Wikipedia posted it everywhere, and they were kind of, like, making fun of him. Jimmy Wales was, like, had these, like, monkey masks made where they could, like, hold up the, that face, like, in front of your face and stuff. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, the guy, like, sued Wikipedia, and PETA filed a brief on behalf of the monkey saying that the monkey should get the copyright. Mm. So uh, crazy. Yeah, anyways, that was a bad argument. I, I, I think that the guy should have gotten the copyright because, in general, in copyright law, there are often people who aren't the people actually snapping the photo, but they're kind of like directing the shoot, yeah. and that's the person who's the author. So, you know, I would have argued that, like, uh, the, 
the guy set up the camera for the monkey to take the thing. Uh-huh. You know, since the United States, our copyright law is like utilitarian uh, is, is the underlying theory. The person who you want to incentivize to get more shots like that is the person who sets up the system for the am- animal to take the photo. Yeah. Like, a monkey's not going to be incentivized by giving it a copyright. It's not going to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, if I was yeah. that guy, I would be like, what? <laughs> yeah, anyways. So that's the monkey copyright case. My favorite trademark case is this, this kid. He, like, uh, in his school, everybody was wearing the North Face clothes. And he kind of, like, he didn't. He wanted to be, like, countercultural. And so he made his own product line called the South Butt. That's what I thought. I, I, and, I saw that coming. Yeah, and yeah. So you like flip the logo upside down, so it kind of uh-huh. looks like a butt. And uh, you know, this North Face also has this slogan: "Never stop exploring." And so his slogan was "Never stop relaxing." And uh, <laughs> and the, the North Face sued him. Oh, they sued a teenager. I, well, I don't know how old he was. He, oh. he might have been in college. I I can't remember if he was in high school or college. Really? Yeah, but anyways, they, they did sue him. And and one of their ca- counts was that it was uh, there was a likelihood of confusion, and so that one resulted in these really funny uh, briefs to the judge because because then the attorney for the kid was like, "Your Honor," because in trademark law, if if consumers are likely to confuse your mark with somebody else's, that's infringement. Mm-hmm. And so, anyways, the brief from the from the kid's lawyer was like, "Your Honor." Are they really saying people will confuse a face with a butt? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, that's um, it's that's not like the only count uh, that yeah. they can make. You can also make the argument that like, well, you're disparaging our mark. You know. Yeah. But do yeah. do people look at that and they're like, that's such a big company, and here's like this college kid, and it's like. Yeah. And I not mean, fair. in reality, like no consumer is going to see that and think like, oh, the North Face made that. Like they're not going to yeah. be making fun of themselves with their, uh, their yeah. own like knockoff brand. But trademark law in general, though, is protective of the first comer. So it's kind of like, you know, whoever first starts using a mark, that's who gets rights in it. Technically, in the United States, too, like you don't have to register a mark to get rights in the mark. You, you actually get rights through use. If you're using it in like in more than one state, then you can protect it all across the United States, you know. But, like, if you just used it in every state, you would get rights in every state. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't have to federally register it. But there are other advantages to federal registration, so. Those are interesting cases. Those are fun cases. And then with regards to patent law, like, even though there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine, there are about a dozen applications every year for perpetual motion machines. (laughs) So the patent office has this classification system. So when you file your application... They'll classify it like, you know, okay, semiconductors or, you know, whatever, software. They have all these different classifications that they'll classify it in. They have a special classification just for perpetual motion machines called gimmicks. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can just look up, you can go online, you can just search using the, the code for that thing it'll just pull up all the perpetual motion machines. And yeah, there's like about a dozen every year. If it worked, that would like be be awesome. Incredible game changer. We'd have, you know, infinite energy. Yeah. I had this argument with somebody one time when, the, yeah, there was this patent application somebody had written, and uh, the thing was a perpetual motion machine, though, and they, they didn't understand that when they wrote it. And the patent office came back and said it's a perpetual motion machine. And so I was, like, in this debate with somebody explaining to them, no, this is a perpetual motion machine. And we were in front of the secretary's office, and I said, it doesn't matter. You can't disobey the third law of thermodynamics. And the secretary just burst out laughing because it was like the nerdiest thing she'd ever heard. <laughs> but, yeah, you can't create energy. So, 
anyways, you listeners are probably totally falling asleep from <laughs> 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 uh, the thermodynamics uh, question. But yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why you can't do this, and like people will always the the thing that tips you off to one of these is that like they always like use gravity or magnets or they'll use something like a waterfall or something. They'll say like, okay, we're going to get energy from this waterfall, and then we're going to pump all the water back up too, and still have energy left over. Nope. And uh, no, it's not. You always lose some energy. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's no yeah. such thing as a perfectly efficient question. system. I don't know. You said you had a question. I, I can't. Oh! I can't read your mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah, has anyone invented that yet? I guess not. God um, has. Um, uh, how, does, how does Creative Commons work? Because, for instance, you know I love The Office. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to make, like, take clips that weren't already on YouTube from The Office episodes. Like and, your like, favorite ones. That's right. So like Bryce's right. top. That's right. Sure. Um, and, yeah. and and then when I tried to post them on YouTube, I couldn't. Uh, and I, I, and just in general and so other business stuff I've tried, like I've always been, I haven't been clear on like what you're allowed to use of other people's stuff and whatnot. And, yeah. And, by the way, I couldn't on YouTube because NBC Universal that owns the rights like has put the kibosh on putting new content there. Probably because they want to. Sure. It's their stuff, and they are posting. Yeah, anyway. it's pretty much illegal. Yeah, um, basically. But and yet, so many other people have succeeded in posting office clips before. Yeah, they, and the kibosh was put on. So when was worth, the kibosh put on? It's, I don't know, but like, there's definitely like clips that are like like someone uh, doing like recording their TV. Not just that, but other ones where they they they've clearly like pulled it directly from DVD yeah. or whatever. Sure. Um, that is illegal still. Um, it's a, that's illegal. It is. That's just an enforcement problem. Is oh. that, um, so once everything... Even bec- if you say the rights belong to NBC Universal on your, in the video description? Uh, it doesn't matter at all. Um, huh. So I, I often get questions about copyright law because of that. People want to know what they can do without infringing the copyright. And sometimes I get stuff like tra- that about trademarks as well. But like, so with copyright law, basically, it's a... It's a exclusive right to make copies. So if you're making a copy um, and you're not the content owner, then you're infringing, hmm. generally. Now, there are a few like fair use exceptions, but when you're like just a person posting it on YouTube because you want people to see it, that's not doesn't fit any of the exceptions. Hmm. A few things that don't matter, for example, is that it does not matter whether or not you're making money off of it. Mm-hmm. Well, all that matters is that it could affect... The content owner's uh, value in, in their being able to sell the product that they have. Uh, like, for example, a, a band that does like uh, covers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, technically they're infringing if they haven't gotten rights from the copyright owners to to uh, perform those songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, there's like an exception for like stuff that's done in your own home with friends. That's why a karaoke is like okay. Mm. But if you have some like big you know, public, you have something that's kind of more of like a public event and you have a cover band there mm-hmm. and the fact that you're not charging doesn't matter. Hmm. You still could be infringing all the songs. Uh, unless they've gotten express permission. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. exactly. Interesting. You know, or unless you've bought, an, you've purchased a license or whatever for like a one-time oh. deal. Professors like in classrooms can use like small, you know, they can use portions of copyrighted oh, material for educational purposes. Purpose. But you know. But can't anyone claim that something uh, they post on YouTube is for educational purposes? I, I don't think that's gonna fly in court. So tell it to the judge. 
uh, I think you probably would lose. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's in an, it's like in an educational setting where that exception kind of applies. Oh, like at a college, okay, you can make a copy of like a portion of a chapter of some book to hand out to your students, you know, or something like that. You can do stuff like that. So you know, you started uh, me down a path because I was thinking about Napster. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you remember yeah. Napster? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved Napster, but was that shut down because it was infringing on copyright? Absolutely. Yeah. But that was around for a while. It was. And here's one of the things that... After w- that was Groove Shark, I think. Or, or, anyway. There were yeah, people. and Spotify now. But, well, so, like, when everything went digital, it, it became very easy to infringe and very easy to make copies. And this is one of the problems with everything being digital is that, like, back in the days when somebody had a book that they had a copyright in, there was at least a cost involved in making infringing copies because you yeah. had to go make a copy and you had to pay the to do that you know with a digital song you can copy it a million times it doesn't really cost you anything except yeah. your time it's it's much easier to infringe and it's difficult for the content owners to be able to enforce everything right. so like when you find stuff on youtube there's clips of stuff that's mostly because it's an enforcement issue the content okay. owner just can't you just can't yeah. pull up all the weeds man same, they're coming up all the time like when people post like music like music videos or just yeah, or, or when people do their uh, people do covers of songs. Uh-huh. Or do Technically, like they're infringing. The, song with you know, like the lyrics posted. Sure. Yeah. And just yeah, and to some extent, it's ex- all illegal, huh? It's all technically illegal. Uh, but I everyone's mean, doing it. Exactly. So it's okay. <laughs> but everyone's doing it, and the, the problem is that the, your average citizen in the United States doesn't doesn't see why that should be illegal, and and, yeah. and they don't agree, and they right. they think like, well, it should be free. Yeah, and they, everything they, should be free. Should, if it benefits me. Sure, that, that's one of the arguments. They give a lot of arg- other arguments. Strong that, argument. That, other people's stuff should be free as long sure. as it benefits me. They'll give a lot of other arguments that aren't necessarily logically sound either. Like, well, I'm not hurting their market for this thing because I wasn't going to buy this thing anyways. <laughs> so I'll just take a free copy. But that's kind of some weird... I actually have a buddy in uh, Arizona who would say that all the time. Uh, content owners, it's like a lot of work going out and stopping these things. Yeah. To some extent, I think they probably think like, well, we get some free advertising through this, and, yeah, exactly. and you know, maybe we don't care. So, you know, they, they generally tend to yeah. enforce against people that they think they can get money from. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're taking a risk, though. You, you could yeah. potentially be liable for statutory damages, which just means you just have to pay, you know, a certain amount of money, even though you didn't make any money off of it yourself. Huh. They, they could enforce it against you and do yeah. that. So you're putting yourself at risk. Huh. If you do that, showing a video at a church event, like uh-huh. showing some commercial video at a church event, technically infringing, <gasps> you know, ch- showing like Charlie Brown's Christmas <gasps> at like a church event on Christmas, technically infringing. <gasps> um, even if you have the Even if you movie? own the video, because you're, you're, it's a public, uh, it's like a public uh, performance slash display of the thing. Oh. Now you can show it in your home and that's okay. Hmm. But at like a church event, you're, you're putting your church at risk if you do that because your church can be liable for that Wait. potentially and they often have deep pockets. So then there's like all these outdoor movies places so they yeah. probably are... Well, okay. So all I can say is that without a license, it's infringement. That's interesting. So it's possible that like, and I would guess that like, for example, a lot of these outdoor movies, I mean, yeah. some of them that I've been to, they're like put on like by a city. Yeah. Yep. And so my, my strong guess is that they actually somehow work it out with the content owner, like, hey, we're the city of Sandy, we'd like to show your movie, how much would it cost for a one-time license to show this? And I'm guessing they actually purchase the license to do it. I mean, because if not, they're kind of really putting themselves at risk, because cities have money. 
And, you know, the content owners would sue them if they yeah. if it was worth it for them to do that. But, yeah. I mean, it's possible they're just infringing, but my guess is that they got a license somehow. I feel like we went down a whole road, but I liked That's it cool. because yeah. it's, like, yeah. interesting yeah. because now I'm like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. I don't know, because your argument, like how you were saying that people are like, well, I wasn't going to buy their stuff anyways. Like, it's not that big of a deal if I use this. But, but I think that the cool thing is in our government is that, like, we have the opportunity to protect against yeah. our creative ideas. Yeah. That's, that actually is really cool. Pro- property rights is one of, yeah. things, one of the key elements that has allowed us to be prosperous. Yeah. And I mean, sure, it's like no big deal to the person who's taking the song if they're not, not themselves a songwriter or whatever. They think like, well, those people are making so much money, they're not going to care if I take yeah. one. But, you know, all that stuff adds up. And if you're the person, though, who's like a songwriter trying to get off the ground and creating your own content, then, man, it's a huge deal if people yeah. are just like taking your stuff for free and not yeah. paying you for it. And yeah. Like Radiohead like put out some album where they were like, uh, we're just going to have people pay us. with yeah. and You notice they never did that again. They put out some album where people could pay them whatever they wanted. Oh. And they didn't, they only did that once. Like, because people don't, when you give people that option, they uh-huh. underpay, you know. And it was probably an experiment anyway. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It was probably an experiment. Yeah. But it's like when I put software on my computer and they're like, this is free, but it's, um, you can donate if you want. Uh-huh. You know, and, and so far I never have. <laughs> and, and I feel guilty Me about too. that, but, you know. <laughs> If you give me the option, I might just take it for free. Um, so there's a lot of things that are technically infringing, but that don't get enforced because it's yeah. difficult to enforce. And yeah. when you're trying to pull up 100 weeds, well, you're just probably going to focus on the big ones first. So can I just add as an interesting yeah. tangent? So when I did sure. try to post those office clips, yeah. like the word the office, like didn't he, I experimented with a lot of things to see what would not get flagged by them. Um, and like even when I didn't mention the office, like, Somehow they, their software allows them to like, I don't know if it's recognized voice patterns or something. Basically, NBC was able to like, yeah, determine that I was using their stuff sure. without any, they without have any some sort like of text. trademark on it. Probably, with I mean, well, it was literally video. a file that on my on my computer that I had then uploaded. But somehow they were able to analyze yeah. that file and know that it was that. Hey, that's. Uh, those are lines that our characters... But this is my guess. I'm assuming this is how they did it. Either that or they sure. have someone... Either that or YouTube has a an NBC Universal rep who looks at each video uploaded on, on uh, YouTube. Right, he's like... I don't think it's likely. He's like, I hate my life. He's like, play, play, play. It might be fun, though. Um, well, I know, that, I know that they've, in the past, had um, just you know, video technology that it, mm-hmm. it just looks at the video and sees if it can match it with an existing video, you know, and that, yeah, and that's why a, for a yeah, while people would reverse the image and post it oh. on YouTube reversed so that that technology wouldn't catch it. But they probably have stuff now that also catches the reverse image. Yeah. yeah um, I don't know. I've noticed, for example, on Marco Polo that a lot of times when you take the video in there, it's a reversed image. And I've wondered if it's for that reason. Huh. So that, um, but I don't really know why. Either way. I'm Anyways. Sorry. I'm not taking. If it's infringing on other people's property, then I'm fine. So lesson learned. Let's not steal from the office. I've given up on it. But yeah, hey, golden rule. Clip that was really, really funny. That the world needed to know. Sure, I know. I hear you. Look, I fell prey to these things myself. I was listening to this uh, podcast. uh, I was listening to This American Life several weeks back, Mm -hmm. and there was an episode all about breakups, right? And they talked about all these Phil Collins songs. 
Uh-huh. And I was like, man, I really want to hear that Phil Collins song now. And so what do you do when you want to hear one single song? You usually just type it in, and it pulls up a YouTube video, and it plays it. And so that's what I did. But uh-huh. technically, that's an infringing copy of Phil Collins' song. Uh-huh. So I was uh, complicit in the infringement there. I felt a little bit of guilt. But, like, um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, it's uh, technically infringement. Mm-hmm. Some of that stuff isn't as forced as much as it, partly because it's not it's difficult to enforce. But, you know, for example, um, um, I didn't watch, um, what's that show on HBO that was, like, really gruesome? Game of Thrones? Yeah, Game of Thrones. Like, I didn't watch Game of Thrones, uh, but um, somebody, like, leaked a, a copy ahead of time or something, or it was, like, on YouTube, or some parts of it were on YouTube or something like that, and they kind of, like, famously just were like, yeah, okay, whatever. And they, <laughs> they just didn't, they just chose not to enforce it uh-huh. and felt like, you know, maybe it's kind of like just advertisement for them and they don't yeah. care. So sometimes content owners just make the decision. Right. It's up to the content owner whether or not they want to enforce the right. But they do have the right to enforce yeah. Yeah. if they want to. Yeah. So, and if they do, then you might owe them money. So. Yeah. so you do put yourself at risk. It might be a calculated risk that you choose to just put it up anyways. Yeah. yeah. Anything that you want us to add? Uh, okay. Oh. If you want to, so when Bryce was asking earlier about things that there's not a market for, but the uh-huh. people want a patent, uh-huh. there's an entire website dedicated to patents for things that are kind of stupid. What is it? Is it's it a called, humor website? It's a humor website. Uh-huh. It's called totallyabsurd.com. Uh-huh. And all it is is like like the weirdest patents you can imagine. <laughs> I'll put that, that up there. Totallyabsurd.com. Yeah, they have things. Oh, and every once in a while, you get a patent that goes through this for something that clearly should not have been patented. Huh. Like somebody was able to issue a patent for, um, it was called a method of exercising a cat. And it was basically like using a laser pointer and having a cat chase it. Somebody somehow got a patent on that. Like it was basically in the public domain. Like everybody had done that. <laughs> they call those stick patents. They're like, oh, it's like you got a patent on a stick, even though it already existed. Stick patents. Yeah. Like but. Yeah, people can find me on my website, pauljohnsonlaw.com, and I have a lot of more material on there just about like the differences between the different types of intellectual property and uh, even even when somebody has some idea of what they might need, um, it's good to just talk with an attorney. Most attorneys will do free consultations. It usually kind of clears things up for you and you kind of have a good idea of like, well, what you really need to go forward or if you need some help from an attorney or not, you know. Let me, wait, let me share one more thing. Yeah. Uh, last thing. Some guy at Stanford did this study. It was called the Patent Lottery. Hmm. And um, so in the United States, for whatever reason, your your business has more inherent value if you have a patent. You know, this is why you'll see this on Shark Tank. Like, the guys will always ask, like, do you have a patent or, or are you patenting it or whatever. Hmm. Like, so anyways, some examiners are more likely to let something through than other examiners. Hmm. So you'll have some examiners in the same technology area that will allow, like, a higher percentage of patents and others that will allow fewer. Mm. And so the same as the Stanford uh, researcher did this study, and it was like, for the if you if you get one of those examiners that's easier, it's called winning the patent lottery. <laughs> and then he studied these businesses down the, down the road, and it's something like, you know, five years down the road, ten years down the road, you make X more amount of money. Uh, your business does. You have more employees. You, have a, you get more funding. You get more capital. Just because you have a patent, and that's oh. not even... Or, or you know, one or more patents, and that's not even based off of how strong the patent is, whether it really protects your thing as good as it can, how much huh. co- area it covers. 
So there is value in uh, getting patent protection. Like investors take you a lot more seriously. Yeah. You can you can um, sense, you can get funding and yeah. use the patent as collateral. Yeah. Um, so you know it's like it's um, it helps your business to stay alive if you have something that you can protect. Yeah. You know, and that you can have some value in it. Trademarks have value as well. Like they, you know, they're they're worth money. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here with us, Paul and, yeah. and Bryce. Yeah. Thanks for being a great co-host. My pleasure. Yeah. And if you want to hear more of this great duo and them talking about their relationships, I'll have a link on the website to their podcast for Lost and Ships. Thank you. Yeah. And make sure to check them out. Which is all about. Awesome human relationships. That's right. Make them awesome again. We don't talk about intellectual property all on there. So if you felt this was boring. Shockingly. (laughs) Well, every once in a while, a little piece comes in. That's true. Yes, this is a lot more serious of a podcast than the one on there. But um, but yeah, I'm glad that like, so I was a guest on their podcast. She was. It was great. And so it's fun to have you guys on here. So thanks for coming. Thanks for listening, Utah. If you want to learn more about Paul Johnson and his law practice, check out pauljohnsonlaw.com. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. We want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, WaziTech, Utah's premier IT support company. They will help you with any of your IT needs. Go to www.wazitech.com. That's W-A-Z-I-T-E-C-H.com. If you love the beehive state, we're here to tell you why it is great. From Lake Powell up to Bear Lake, our scenery you just can't fake. It's 29, all with plenty of places you can die. This western state is quite the hub to learn more. Join with us at the Utah Fan Club. Mm-hmm.